Welcome to our 80th forum and to the onset of our 12th consecutive year of presenting critical issues in ethical perspective, and that with the help of speakers who know what they're talking about and who care deeply. Today, our guest is Principal Chief of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, William P. Mankiller. Chief Mankiller was elected to her post in a historic tribal election in July of 1987. Chief Mankiller was born in the rural community of Rocky Mountain in Adair County, Oklahoma, and lived on allotted Oklahoma land. At the age of 12, she moved to California as part of an American Indian Affairs relocation program. Older and wiser regarding the needs of her people, she returned to Oklahoma in 1977 with her two daughters and began working actively for her Cherokee people there. One way and another, she has labored tirelessly and effectively for the empowerment of Native Americans, especially at the local level. She strongly encourages the tribal membership to become more self-reliant. At the same time, she devotes much energy and expertise to intergovernmental relations in order to bring about an enlightened state and congressional response to American Indian needs and concerns. She has won wide respect and well-earned recognition for her work, for who she is. We are fortunate to have her with us today. Her theme, a Native American tribal perspective on life in America. Welcome, Chief Mankiller. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here today, and I'd like to especially thank Wenda Moore for being such a gracious host and for the people who have made it possible for me to be here. I've been to Minneapolis several times. In fact, I just saw a fellow Cherokee here who says she doesn't ever get to Oklahoma, but I get to, to Minneapolis to see her quite a bit. always enjoy coming to this uh, city. It's kind of interesting get, getting to travel to different places. Last night in the hotel, I met a fellow who asked me, who had seen some article about me somewhere when I was elected uh, recently, and he asked me how he should address me. And it reminded me of an incident that I had on another trip um, uh, with some folks. I went to become a panelist on a, um, on, I forgot the issue, contemporary Indian issues or something like that, in an Eastern college. It'll, it'll remain an unnamed Eastern college. And this young fellow came to the airport to, uh, to pick me up to take me out to the university and he said well since chief is a male term how should I address you and uh, he asked if he should address and I just ignored him I just looked out the window and uh, he uh, so then he asked me if he should call me chieftainess and um, so I told him no and um, then he asked me if he should call me chiefette and uh, so and I told him no I finally told him to call me Ms chief mischief and um, we, we went on out to the university it turns out this young fellow was one of the people who got to ask questions of the of the panelists and um, he uh, uh, asked me he, he was the person who got to ask me about my name 
And uh, my name, Mankiller, is a, uh, used to be a long time ago, a, a Cherokee military title. The Cherokees had a very well-organized military, and Mankiller was like a general in the, in the military. And uh, my ancestor decided he liked the title so well, he kept it as his name, and that's who we trace our ancestry back to. And, um, the, but that's not what I told him. When he asked me about my name, when he asked me about the origin of my name, I told him it was a nickname and I'd earned it. And, uh, so, and I just left him with that. I never cleared that up. So there's this, this group of yuppies there somewhere on the East Coast who think that that's my uh, nickname and that I earned it. They're still wondering how. What Wenda asked me to talk with you about today is just to touch briefly on uh, some contemporary tribal issues. I, we spend, in this forum, I understand, an equal amount of time on, on an overview and an equal amount of time on questions and answers. So what I'm going to do is just touch on some highlights that I think that are important um, for you to, to think about. Uh, first, I want to tell you just a tiny bit about my tribe so that you can kind of understand what I do and where I come from. Uh, we're located in the eastern part of Oklahoma, and um, most of our area is rural. Uh, some of our area is remote. Uh, we're the second largest tribe in the United States. The largest by far is the Navajo Nation. I think there are about 225 or 250,000 members of the Navajo Nation. Uh, the Cherokees have about 120,000 that are registered and many more that aren't registered for various uh, reasons. We have... Um, Today we have uh, elected 15 tribal council members, uh, six are women. Uh, we have a, a deputy chief who also serves as president of the tribal council. Uh, we run, like other governments, uh, uh, tribal governments, we, we provide services and, and advocate for our people. We run Head Start centers, literacy projects. Um, we have a fully accredited high school, the Residential Vocational Education Center. We run six primary health care uh, clinics. We have businesses that we operate. Uh, we build roads, we build houses, and, and are involved in many, many, many other kinds of things. Um, we have a budget of about $52 million. About 48% of that um, uh, budget comes from the federal government. The rest of it is self-generated. Uh, uh, I'd say maybe 15 to 18 years ago, 80% of our income uh, came from the uh, federal government, and um, only um, 20% was self-generated, so you can kind of see the direction where we're moving in there slowly but, uh, uh, but surely. I think it's impossible to talk about uh, contemporary Native uh, issues at all without talking just a little bit about our history. And uh, A lot of people, everyday Americans, have, said to, have asked me, how did it come to pass that, that Native people ended up with the worst housing in this country, the lowest educational attainment level? the highest infant mortality rate. What happened? How did, that, how did that occur? And it's impossible to even begin to deal with some of the contemporary issues that we all face every day of our lives and our work without understanding a little bit uh, about the historical factors that played a part in our being in the situation we find ourselves in today. So I want to touch on history. The other thing is that the question that I'm most frequently asked is, why do tribal governments exist today? Why is it that in the, in the midst of the most powerful country in the world do these little tiny governments continue to exist? How did that happen? And uh, why, why do they continue even today? So to try to answer those two con uh, uh, questions about how we got in the situation we find ourselves in today and also 
what it is uh, that makes us um, able to continue to have tribal governments, I'd like to just touch on some history. And because of the time, I'm going to skip, for those of you who are historians, a, uh, an awful lot of uh, history in order to do that. Unfortunately, it's we have to talk about history when we talk about contemporary life because there's, there's virtually no accurate information uh, that I can find in contemporary society about Native people that's consistently taught. If you look at what's taught in the elementary schools or the secondary schools or the colleges, there's a tremendous vacuum of information about Native people. So what happens is that people fill that vacuum with negative stereotypes or stereotypes. They get stereotypes about Native people from movies and from old westerns or from exhibitions in museums or wherever. And uh, so we've got to sort of undo some of, some of that before we can move, move forward. Given the, the uh, uh, stereotypes we have, it's little wonder that there's such misunderstanding sometimes and, and um, miscommunication between Native people and other people of other cultures. To begin to understand that the evolution of the government-to-government -government relationship that tribes today have with the United States government, it's important to understand that there were governments here in, on this continent, in the Americas, long before the United States uh, government was formed and began. There were democracies here long before the United States government came into being. As the, as the United States government was emerging as a nation, they dealt with Indian nations, Indian tribal groups as separate nations, and that began the government-to-government -government relationship, which still continues today to some extent. As the United States government and these various Indian nations began to meet and draw up agreements, treaty agreements, they began to form this kind of relationship that, that continues to today. Today, when you hear Native people talking about treaty rights and upholding, upholding the rights of Native people, uh, what they're talking about is they're talking about upholding these old agreements made between the United States government and Indian nations, and independent Indian nations. Some people have argued uh, that treaties are no longer valid, that the treaties with the Native people are no longer valid because they're old. If you think about that for just a minute, that doesn't make any sense at all. There are many documents that are old. It doesn't make them any less valid. The United States Constitution, for example, is, a, is an old document. There are many other documents, and, and their mere age doesn't make them any less uh, valid. After that initial sort of treaty-making era, again, skipping a lot of history, we entered the war era. And that era uh, when, when, uh, uh, that, um, where there was a lot of war between the newly emerging Americans and the Indian tribes, what those wars were really about that was they were, they were about Native people, indigenous people, trying to hang on to their ancestral homeland. Many of those so-called Indian wars were really massacres. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of the Sand Creek Massacre. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of what happened at the Battle of Wounded Knee. Uh, but anyway, that entire war era, a lot of the wars were uh, basically about Native people trying to hang on to their way of life and their homeland. Even the famous Battle of the Little Bighorn was about those people trying to hang on to their ancestral uh, homeland. After that uh, sort of war era, we entered the relocation and the reservation era. And uh, which was a new, new step in, in uh, federal Indian relations. And I'd like to tell you just briefly what happened to our tribe during that period of time, because our story is so strikingly similar to the story of every other tribe. And I think if you can understand our history, then you can understand a little bit more about uh, 
the issues that we're grappling with today and how we plan to, to dig our way out. During the reservation and the relocation era, our people, the Cherokees, lived in the southeastern part of the United States, in Georgia, North Carolina, Alabama, and Tennessee. We were mostly farm people. Uh, we'd learned, we'd had fairly early European contact and had learned to get along with our southern neighbors. Um, our tribal leaders felt that education was important and sent uh, some of our people off to western institutions to be educated. And um, we had our policies, by and large, um, uh, uh, reflected an attitude toward collaboration and cooperation with, with all of our, our neighbors. In, uh, in the early part of the 19th century, there began to be discussion of removing the Cherokees from our homeland in the southeast to Indian Territory, what is now Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma. And um, there, there, there were several reasons for that, uh, for that discussion, uh, most of them economic. Our land, uh, many people had discovered that our land held a lot of gold, not nearly as much gold as California held, but a, a significant amount of gold nonetheless. Our land was also very good land for growing tobacco. Another major factor, factor was Georgia's battle with the United States over states' rights. Georgia, the state of Georgia, basically did not believe that it should have a sovereign within the boundaries of the state of Georgia. So that was a big factor in the discussion of removal also. Uh, president, uh, by then, uh, General Jackson had become President Jackson, and he was an ardent advocate of removing the Cherokees from our home, homeland to Indian Territory. During all this time, the, uh, we, many of our non-Indian friends, and we had many, many, many non-Indian friends who were advocating uh, for the right of the Cherokee Nation to exist um, uh, there in our original homeland and uh, fighting for the sovereignty of the, of the Cherokee Nation. Uh, many of our friends uh, fought uh, very hard for us and um, for our right to remain there, and our own chief fought very, very hard for the... Uh, for our right to remain there also. Uh, we put up uh, quite a battle. Internally within our tribe, there was a bitter, bitter political division. Uh, some, some uh, you can still see it, a little bit of that continuing to today over the issue of removal itself. Some of our tribal people felt that as the, as the discussion of removal continued, that removal to Indian territory was inevitable. And that, so what we should do is we should just organize ourselves and figure out a peaceful way to go on to Indian territory and reestablish our communities and government there. Some of our people felt that we should stay there in the southeast and fight to the death for the right to stay there. So it created this bitter internal political division uh, during this uh, time when we were, we were battling that. We also took our case to, uh, through the uh, United States judi judicial system and in fact, our case went all the way to the United States Supreme Court and a very uh, famous, um, uh, and we won. Uh, the, we won the right to, to um, uh, maintain our tribal government in the Southeast. In a very famous speech, President uh, Jackson uh, basically told the United States Supreme Court, you've made this uh, ruling in favor of the Cherokees, now let's see you enforce it, and continued on with the... Um, with the attempt to get the United States Congress to pass the Removal Act. To, to sort of summarize that, we lost all those battles, and in 1838, the, the President Jackson ordered the United States Army to begin gathering our people up uh, throughout the Southeast, inventorying our property and our belongings and putting us in stockades, our people, our ancestors in stockades, and preparing for the removal to forced removal to Indian Territory. That removal um, uh, occurred uh, 
pretty much throughout 1838 and ended in, in April of 1839. By the time the removal was over, uh, fully one-fourth of our entire tribal members had died, either at, while being held in the stockades or uh, on the removal itself, much of which was conducted in the winter on foot. So our people arrived in Indian territory with many people dead. Uh, the political system and the cultural system and the social system that we'd always known had been left behind. Families were, were divided over the issue of removal itself. Yet what is absolutely remarkable in looking back on our people and our history is that our people began almost immediately to rebuild a community and rebuild a tribal government in Indian Territory. The United States government had told us that in exchange for giving up uh, an area spanning several states in the southeast, we would be allowed to, to have the eastern part of Oklahoma and live there forever without being disturbed. And so believing that, we, we began to pull together and rebuild a tribal government. So that by the early 1840s, certainly by the mid-1840s, we had rebuilt a tribal government. Uh, we started printing our own newspapers in Cherokee and in English. We built beautiful institutions of government, which still stand today as the oldest buildings in what is now Oklahoma. We established a judicial system. Uh, we established the first schools west of the Mississippi, Indian or non-Indian. We also established schools for the education of women, which was a very radical idea for that part of the world at that particular period of time in history. What's interesting when we talk about uh, stereotypes is to, is to, and looking back at history and reading old documents, is to, is to see what occurred during that period of time. I found some old papers and, and documents that indicated that during the time when we were running our own school systems and teaching courses like Latin and botany and printing newspapers in Turkey and in English, and we were more literate than our non-Indian neighbors, that there were still people in this country debating the issue of whether or not Indians were human or whether or not Indians had souls. And so that the stereotypes that we deal with today are uh, certainly, uh, we had to deal with the, uh, similar kinds of stereotypes uh, even then. So we continued on this, uh, this uh, period of rebuilding under the belief that we would be undisturbed and could, could rebuild our communities and our families and our tribal government and economic system in Indian Territory. The Cherokee Nation was a full republic during that period of time. To uh, kind of make a long story short, after the Civil War, which bitter, bitterly divided um, the entire United States, when the, when the country came back together again after the Civil War, there began to be discussion of opening Indian territory up to non-Indian settlement. And uh, as a result of a number of enactments and, and uh, too much uh, detail to go into, uh, that did occur in history in the way that it does sometimes repeated itself. So that by, the, by 1906, Oklahoma came into being and our central uh, tribal government, democratic form of tribal government was dismantled. Our schools were closed down, our tribal judicial system was stopped. Our, tr the tribal government as we knew it basically was very, very diminished. I think most importantly to us as a people, however, the land which we had held in common was allotted out in individual allotments. That had, a, had an incredible impact on our, on our social system. So from 1906, that was in 1906, from 1906 to 1971, there was no central tribal government. 
uh, the leaders for the Cherokee Nation were appointed by the President of the United States. And uh, that's a whole other lecture on leadership and, and how, ex how harmful external leadership is to, is to, uh, to people. By the, I guess the best argument I could make for the continuation of tribal government is to look at what happened to our people during that period of time when we had no tribal government, when we had no voice or no body to help us collectively articulate our own vision of the future and work for ourselves and advocate for ourselves. From, we went from it, uh, being very, very literate to, say, in, in the 60s, that the, uh, let's just choose the early 60s, um, having the lowest educational attainment level of any group in Oklahoma, uh, the poorest uh, uh, housing, uh, the worst uh, uh, health problems. Uh, all the um, indicators of decline uh, were in our communities and um, very, very different than when we had some control over our own destiny. In 1971, we began this vigorous effort to revitalize our central democratic form of tribal government and held an election again in 1971. When we started again in 1971, we started, we were bankrupt, and we started in a storefront in, in Tahlequah. We have no marketable natural resources. We didn't have any kind of leg up on, on this uh, period of re revitalization. We had then and have now a commitment to a tribal community and a tribal government, and we kept that vision. During that period of time, from 1906 to 1971, people would meet on porches and talk about this issue, ride horses to each other's homes to talk about how to revitalize our tribal government, make sure we had a tribal community. That's, that flame never completely went out. People always talked about that. And so in 1971, we began 20 years ago, this process of revitalizing the tribal government. In 20 years, we've gone from that point to the point where we are today, where we're a significant employer in eastern Oklahoma. We began to dig our way out. We have uh, began to turn around the educational attainment uh, level. We've had a, our infant mortality rate, the last time I, I checked, is almost with the, with the uh, population in general. Fewer of our people are living without indoor plumbing. Uh, more of our people are working. Uh, certainly, we've got a long, long way to go to continue to pull, our, pull ourselves out, but, but we have, um, we've managed to do well. The other thing I think that we're most proud of in our community is the fact that we've also managed to hang on to tribal, our tribal language, our tribal culture, a sense of interdependence, and a, a, a strong, strong sense of community. I think those things are very, very important for, uh, for us. The, as I, as I think about what the contemporary issues we, we face today may be, not only in our tribe, but in, in the other tribes around the United States, and I've visited lots of tribal communities, I think the single biggest uh, contemporary issue we, we face is our fight to retain a, a sense of community and a sense of tribalism. I've been fortunate to be able to travel both abroad and in the United States a lot, and the thing I most that I found in even the most troubled, fragmented Native community is a sense of interdependence, a sense of, of having, uh, caring more about, uh, about the people down the road or your tribe or your community and not just being, not just being so uh, focused on, on oneself. Um, I think it's important to retain that, um, that sense of interdependence, that sense of community and that sense of tribal government. Uh, I think that for our tribe, from the Cherokee perspective, we have, uh, the, that would certainly be the biggest single issue, the right to, to retain uh, uh, tribal communities and tribal government. 
we have given up, uh, in our tribe, we've given up uh, incredible amounts of land, many, many lives, lots and lots of uh, resources for what little we have left, few little rights we have left, and little bit of land we have left, which isn't much. And we've given up way too much. And it's my job, and I think the job of people that are in positions like mine, to make sure that we don't give anything up. I'm not giving up another inch. And I think that most of the, the people that are in positions uh, like mine uh, also see that as our biggest, um, our biggest battle. The other issues that we deal with, the second biggest issue that we deal with probably is the issue of how to get our people to trust their own thinking again. We've had a couple of hundred years of the United States government and people external to, to our own tribal people thinking for us and telling us what's best for us and making policy decisions that affect our daily lives. And I think that what that's done to us, people, my father, my grandfather, myself, all these people, it's, 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 it's uh, tried to convince us that we can't trust our own thinking, that we don't have our own, our own vision of the future, that somebody else is going to solve our problems for us. And you know, I'm beginning to think and looking at some of the problems that everyday Americans have, that that's not just a problem that Native communities face. When I, when we talk, when I talk with people, uh, everyday Americans, about problems we have in common, like the environment, or the decline in, in support for social programs in this country, then, uh, I, you know, a lot of people say, well, they're going to solve it. And uh, I thought this was, a, you know, just something that happened in our community, that they're going to solve it. Well, everyday Americans say that they're going to solve it. I don't know who they is. Who, who is going to solve the environment, uh, the environmental problems? There's a mysterious they out there that, that's supposed to solve all these problems. What I try to tell my people is there isn't any they. There's only us. And that if we're ever going to dig our way out, we have to look within our own communities uh, and our own selves for solutions to our problems. But in order to do that, we have to trust our thinking and trust our ability to come up with solutions to our problems and trust our ability to articulate our own vision of the future. So that's another big issue that I see not only for our, our tribe, but also for other tribal people. The other issues we grapple with are, are issues that all people, poor people, deal with. We have tremendous educational problems, tremendous, tremendous problems. Uh, trying, we have all the problems that the American educational system uh, inherently has, and then we have added problems because of language and culture and, and many other factors there. So education is a big, big issue uh, that I think all the tribes um, uh, have in common. Healthcare is another uh, tremendous issue, and it's also a, an issue that not, we, not only Native people, deal with, but I think all Americans. Uh, uh, deal with too the the issue of health care and some kind of equity in in health care it's unconscionable to me that in 1991 in a country this rich that someone could have cancer go to go be diagnosed with cancer uh, be be uh, told that they need chemotherapy and have those people go home and die because they can't afford chemotherapy what kind of country would allow that to continue with that that so that kind of situation is occurring in tribal communities and certainly I think is also occurring um, in America as, as a whole as well. Healthcare then is a big issue. Housing is still a big issue. The, uh, in many of our tribal communities, there are still people living without basic amenities, very, very basic amenities that, uh, that all people should have. Basic infrastructure is a, is a big issue. Jobs, how do we get, create an economy? How do we uh, 
get jobs that are developed, that are environmentally safe, that pay a decent wage. We have a lot of people who want to, to uh, come to our area that uh, have uh, environmentally disastrous businesses that they would bring in a minute. They ha we have people that will uh, come to our communities because they can pay people minimum wage. We don't want those kinds of businesses. And uh, so the, the uh, uh, task of trying to figure out how to develop an economy and have some control over the economic life of our people is also a, a big, big issue uh, for, for many of our, our tribes today. I think that the, um, I'm running out of time here. The, um, finally, I guess the issue that's an issue that, that, uh, that we share with Americans, I just want to briefly, briefly mention that we're concerned about is, that, is the sort of widening gap between poor people and and uh, uh, people with, uh, with wealth. That's something that I think that all of us are, are grappling with, Native people and non-Native people. Finally, I got a letter the other day from a, a woman from this area, actually, who asked me why I'm hopeful. She said she'd listened to a lot of speakers, Native speakers, who went down this litany of problems and, and complaints, and that I was a uh, person that she had heard, in fact, I was the only person that she'd ever heard who was a very, very hopeful about Native people and native communities. And, I, and, and uh, so I want to share with you why I feel that way. I think if you look at history from a native perspective, you have to admire our people individually and collectively. Initially, as this country was growing, the, the most powerful country in the, in the world basically tried to wipe us off the face of the earth. And then failing that, instituted a number of policies designed to make sure that we didn't exist in 1991 as a culturally distinct group of people. And, dis and, and, and yet, despite all that, here we are. We're viable. Our tribal, tribal languages have maybe diminished, but we're still strong. So that you have to admire that kind of tenacity and look at some of the positive attributes that we find in, find in our people. Also, the fact that we've managed to, to retain tribal languages, I think, is, is very, very important. Uh, and, and as I noted earlier, even in the most fragmented, troubled community, uh, people still are, are fighting valiantly to hang on to a tribal culture and tri tribal value system. And I think, again, most importantly, that sense of interdependence that will allow me to go to one of our own communities and ask people to collectively build a water system, and they will do it. And, uh, or, or, or get together and rebuild houses, and they'll do it. Other people call that uh, self-help, and, um, uh, and, and I just call it sort of tapping into our old, old culture, our old sense of doing for one another, or being motivated to do things, not just because they benefit us individually, but because they benefit us collectively. I may not need water in my house, but if I can work on a water system and physically build it and help the fellow or the lady down the road, uh, then I should... Um, I should do that. So I see that in our communities. I see tremendous leadership in our communities also, and potential, even more potential, for leadership among our young people. It's hard for me to look into the faces of our young people today, young Indian people, and not be hopeful about the future. These are people that can celebrate strongly a sense of who they are and, and uh, their culture and their history and heritage, and also interact with the with a larger society. So I think that there are many more positive attributes uh, than, than negative attributes. If you were to ask me what I want mostly for our people, I want us to march confidently into the 21st century, basically on our own terms at long last. And it's, it's interesting how, how much, 
how many stereotypes we all still have about, uh, about one another. And uh, there are way too many negative stereotypes about black people. There are way too many st uh, negative stereotypes about women. Uh, there are negative stereotypes about people, all people of color. And God knows there are all kinds of uh, negative stereotypes about native people. If we're going to begin to deal with the problems in this country collectively, and uh, uh, try to really make a difference. The only way we can do that is to try to understand one another a little bit better and to try to get rid of some of these stereotypes that, uh, that we have about one another. And um, I think that this is probably the best way to, to at least uh, attempt to, to try to do that. So uh, with that, I guess we'll go to questions and answers. Thank you very much. Mankiller, when you came in uh, half or an hour ago and sat down in your chair in the sanctuary here, you commented to me that, uh, in looking at this crowd, that uh, once as a young woman, a very young woman, growing up in a poverty situation, you went to a public gathering not unlike this one, and that you heard a Native American woman speak and uh, she was an inspiration to you and became a role model for you. And you said to yourself then and since, I hope I can do something similar for others in my future. Your wish has been fulfilled. <laughs> Those of you who must leave at this time are permitted to do so. More to the point, any of you who have questions on those yellow cards are encouraged to pass them to the aisles and they'll be brought forward. Let us take a moment to remind our radio audience that uh, you have been listening to the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, Chief Wilma Mankiller, speaking on the subject, a Native American tribal perspective on life in America. The co-sponsor today, the McKnight Foundation. Regarding questions, uh, the radio audience has opportunity as well. Simply call your question in to this number, 332-3421, 332-3421. Chief Mankiller, would you return to the podium, please, and we'll start uh, uh, fielding a few questions. While we're waiting for some to come forward, would you be willing to comment on uh, people's tendency, tendency, the general tendency, to think of American Indians being all alike. Uh, what about sure. the diversity? I think that some, some people actually have thought there was a, an Indian, common Indian language or, or common Indian culture. There are actually well over 450 uh, different tribal groups uh, just in America, North America, and each uh, tribal group has its own language and its own culture, and in some cases its own value system, and uh, that, that are very, very different in many cases. Uh, taken as a whole, I think there are more commonalities among Native people than there are, than there are differences, but certainly there are distinct cultural differences among, uh, among every tribe. Thank you. You talked about stereotypes and you spoke about movies. Would you be willing to say something about uh, Dancing with Wolves? I'm not sure you want to hear what I want to say. Well, go <laughs> I'll ahead. Say it. <laughs> 
I, I, um, I think the movie was uh, great. And um, uh, it was, uh, I think, uh, the first time I'd ever seen uh, on, a, on a film uh, Native people humanized. Uh, there was uh, humor uh, there uh, between uh, the Native people. And uh, it, was a, it was an excellent movie. The scenery was very, very good. Uh, so I think it was a good start toward erasing um, some of the stereotypes. I've always, however, been puzzled by the fact that there are all these wonderful, beautiful Lakota women around and why Kevin Costner's character found the one white woman in the entire region and fell in love with her. And uh, so that's been the big puzzle, trying to figure that out. <laughs> Thank you. I told you you didn't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Question from the floor. Does the Cherokee vision of the future of life in this country entail joining the dominant white Anglo-Saxon culture as participants, or might one day this culture actually be altered through the efforts of Cherokee, Native Americans, and other minorities? Is joining the status quo inevitable? I think that if it hasn't happened by today with all the um, uh, policies that have been instituted uh, uh, to try to make sure that uh, uh, Cherokees join the status quo that it probably will never happen because the in my in my father's generation he was raised in an Indian boarding school they were absolutely taught to to not uh, speak uh, Cherokee and they were taught to that in order to make it in society to be to be successful uh, they had to give up tribal culture and um, uh, give up a sense of being who they are. In my generation, and the generations that are younger than me, I think we've learned that that's not true, that we can, that we can have a strong sense of culture and a strong sense of self, and that we can, uh, we can also interact with the larger society. I think it's safe to say that 100 years from now, if you're still having these forums, mm -hmm. that there will be a Native people that will be standing here talking about uh, the continuation of, of tribal government and tribal culture. Good. Thank you. Another question from the floor pertaining to the culture again. Can a culture that historically thrived on public efforts in hunting, fishing, and life in general survive in a financially seductive culture that highly rewards only private enterprise and private gain? Uh, that's the single biggest factor, I think, and the single biggest uh, problem uh, that we face today, and I think it's the most often um, uh, most often the topic of a conversation as we look long-term at our, at our future and, and as our survival uh, as a people. How, where, do you, where do you draw the line? And I've talked in our own tribe with uh, traditional leaders about um, whether or not we should be um, trying to encourage young people to play, who obviously in school learn to play football and baseball and basketball, if we should also be at the same time institute a number of programs to teach them traditional tribal games like stickball and those kinds of things or whether or and almost uh, uh, require them to do that or whether we should just leave that as an option. Uh, I think that that question and the influence of television on our culture is probably the single biggest uh, uh, biggest issue we have. I, I again would have to say that given the fact that we've had television and all these pressures for, for changing and the public education system which va values individual um, and personal achievement much more than group achievement that if we've managed to hang on as long as we have I think there's at least some hope that we can continue to do that that's a very 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 serious issue for mm -hmm. all of us mm -hmm. thank you 
this is a related question, perhaps you've already addressed it. Is it feasible for city Indians to reclaim their culture and simultaneously pursue a technical career? Absolutely. I think that the, from, from our perspective in our tribe, we view culture not necessarily as participating in every tribal ceremony or looking or dressing a, a certain way, but more as a value system. And you could take that value system with you to Minneapolis or Washington, D.C. or New York City or whatever it is you, you choose to do. You don't have to, to live out some stereotype of, um, of an internal stereotype of how you, should, how you should be. So I think that's very true. People see me. I'm very active. I go to Washington and lobby, mm -hmm. and yet I'm very, also very active in our tribal ceremonies. And, and uh, so I think, that, um, uh, I think that you can do both. A question from the radio audience. Please address the role of women in the Cherokee society. Well, we're moving up. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, uh. I was just remark remarking to my Cherokee friend here who was here when, when I went, it was in Oklahoma when I went through the election in 1983, which was a brutal, hurtful, horrible, anti-female uh, election and what a difference it was to go from that in 1983 when I first tried to tried to to be elected and was elected to 1991 where I was elected by 83 percent of the vote and uh, so I think that we're we're uh, just by uh, continuing to to work and uh, be an active part of our community we we're, we're changing the role back to the way it used to be before we adopted uh, European thought of sexism. Another question from the floor. How do you invite Cherokee people who have moved mentally and spiritually from Cherokee life back to their Cherokee birthright? And then a P.S. And will you say the most beautiful word in Cherokee to us? Now, I don't know what word she has in mind. Perhaps you know. Sure. <laughs> the, um, what was the first part of the question again? How do you invite Cherokee people oh, okay. who have moved sure. mentally and spiritually from Cherokee life back to their Cherokee birthright? Uh, many of the Cherokees uh, that have moved away, uh, particularly in the relocation era, uh, keep close ties to home and um, uh, visit uh, frequently and interact with people at home. So it's pretty much happening on its own. We have an annual kind of public uh, uh, celebration during Labor Day weekend, which actually commemorates our 1839 Constitution and many of our tribal members come back then to, to sort of uh, renew themselves. Mm -hmm. We also have a, an annual ceremonial dance during that time and uh, that's more private. And um, uh, many people that are interested in that aspect of tribal life also uh, are, are able to participate in that. And uh, so um, there are, it's sort of happening without our instituting things to ways for it to happen. I guess the most beautiful word to me, to me since I miss, miss self-help is gadugi. And what gadugi means is, is uh, there are many literal translations of that, that, but what that means is that everybody getting together and collectively doing something and working together. Say it again. Gadugi. Maybe we should all say it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, what are your views on gambling on the different reservations? Well, I think that that's a, a, a decision that each tribal government has to make for itself. Some tribal governments have opted to not get involved at all in, in, uh, in gambling, and others have opted to get involved in it. In, in our area, the Creek Nation in Oklahoma has been the most active out front on, um, on uh, gaming, and they've done marvelous things with the uh, revenue from their gaming. They've uh, built um, 
community centers and given several, several hundred thousand dollars to their hospital and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So I think that if it's well controlled uh, by the tribe, uh, that it can be a viable economic alternative. Mm -hmm. Thank you. But Another you question uh, from the radio audience. Uh, I have just finished reading the book, The Broken Cord, which deals with alcoholism among Native Americans. Would you comment on this problem and any possible solutions? Boy, that's a, that's a very, very serious problem. We have a major uh, uh, education program around fetal alcohol uh, syndrome. I think that's a, uh, that's a problem that all tribes uh, have in common that we're trying to deal with. I, it, in a way, I think just the broken cord and people, Native people talking about it and bringing it out in the open and seeing it as a problem is a big step toward uh, trying to resolve it. It was a problem that was sort of hidden within the communities that people didn't um, knew existed, uh, but didn't really talk about both the problem and how to solve it until fairly recently. So uh, the broken cord in a way, uh, I think, helped to open up dialogue and, and um, uh, many tribes have developed programs to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Question from the floor. To what do you attribute your overwhelming victory uh, in your re-election as principal chief signed a Cherokee voter? <laughs> maybe we should ask the Cherokee voter. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> I don't know. I think that, um, I guess people like the way things are going. I don't know. I, I, think, I do think that I represent hope to people, that I, I'm no great leader, I'll tell you that. I, uh, what I have that's maybe a little bit different is I'm an optimist and I believe in our people. And I think that uh, people like to have someone in leadership that's hopeful mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, not, a, not in a sort of Pollyanna-ish way, but, uh, but is a, a, in a real way where you develop programs and, and believe in our people. I think you'd have our vote. <laughs> I read recently, I think it was yesterday's paper, a question about judges. Uh, in your society, the issue of protecting the autonomy of Indian tribal judges. Is, that's a current issue, I gather. Mm -hmm. Could you speak to it? Sure. We have a, um, as I told you earlier, our tribal judicial system was abolished at the turn of the century, and we just reinstituted a tribal judicial system in the last year. And uh, that there's a, if without a tribal judicial system, uh, because of all the conflicting laws uh, relative to jurisdiction, there's just kind of this no man's land where nobody has jurisdiction. So I think that it's very important to uh, preserve uh, tribal judicial systems. We have uh, both a district court system and also a, um, a tribal supreme court system, our old judicial appeals tribunal. And um, our first uh, district judge since statehood uh, is a woman. And uh, I didn't particularly go out and say, we've got to have a woman judge. I went and found the uh, uh, best qualified person in our entire area, and she happened to be a woman. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, we've, um, we have a full uh, 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 judicial system in place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Question from the floor. What do you think about the professional sports teams that promote the negative stereotyping of Native, of native people, Washington Redskins, Cleveland Indians, et cetera? Well, I think they're very offensive. They, um, they, uh, and, and I don't know why they, they continue. Um, I don't know how that started uh, to begin with, but when I see something like that on television or on, on T-shirts and, and that sort of thing, it's very, very offensive. Mm -hmm. to, to the tribes that use them, the headdresses are very sacred. And there are several tribes in Oklahoma that use the eagle feathers, and, and uh, they're very, very sacred objects to, to wear those. 
uh, headdresses. And so when, when, when I see uh, uh, someone uh, sort of ha with a caricature kind of um, Indian uh, using a, a, a sacred object, it's very, very offensive. And um, I wish people were more sensitive uh, 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 to that issue. I think it, that sort of helps to perpetuate stereotypes uh, about Native people also. It's very offensive. Could you elaborate on the spiritual and cultural values of your people? I think you're representing them by <laughs> what you're saying. Yeah, but, that's uh, sort of like saying, what's the meaning of life? I'm yeah, not sure yeah, I can do that. Yeah. They, um, I could say some things that have helped me a lot. I've, I've um, uh, last year had a kidney transplant and have had many other kinds of uh, personal uh, uh, problems that I've had to overcome individually and then as in my tribe uh, collectively with my people mm -hmm. and what's always sustained me is a tribal value which I call having a good mind and uh, uh, which is sort of a universal uh, Cherokee or maybe Iroquoian uh, a belief that uh, that you that you need to sort of uh, whatever situation you find yourself in to, to find the positive attributes of um, of that situation and then focus on, on those to move forward. That's a tribal value that I think is very, very important that allowed, and I think that value has helped us to, to um, time and time again uh, uh, bounce back uh, collectively from adversity and, and, and move forward and not, uh, not sit around and be bitter about, um, about all the things that have happened to us historically. So that's mm -hmm. one value. Thank you very much. Question from the floor. What about Columbus and the 500th anniversary next year? Well, <laughs> you could, uh, that's, um, I, I hope the forum will have a, have a, a good speaker on that issue uh, next year. It's um, the, I don't know, we, we could do many things. We could either get angry and stay angry the whole year, looking at uh, the devastation that's occurred over the last five hundred years or we could protest all the hoopla that's going to go on or we could use next year as an opportunity for doing education and I guess I'd fall into the third category and say that I think we should use that opportunity to to do do education and um, uh, try to provide more accurate information not only on the history of the Americas but also on on um, contemporary native life it's all the misunderstandings that happened um, about Native people, I think, begin basically with that Columbus myth. When we all go to grade school and Indian and non-Indian, and and and, um, and we learn about uh, about Columbus, and there's no mention of the of the cultures and the civilizations and the democracies that existed uh, here long before Columbus stumbled onto this continent. And so I think that uh, I think that if we're careful, we can use this as an opportunity to do do some education. Columbus. Um, uh, really, there's there, not only about the, dis the the discovery myth, but there are lots of other myths about uh, uh, Columbus that I hope uh, people will discuss. He's not the first person to 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 disprove the uh, theory that the world was flat, for example. Uh, he certainly wasn't the first person to make uh, or first European to make contact with this continent. So, I hope that um, and uh, it'll be a time when we can sort of undo some of those myths about Columbus. Another question: How can part Native Americans stand up and be recognized? Well, in, in our tribe, our tribe is fairly mixed. Uh, I, for example, am half uh, Cherokee and half Dutch and Irish. Hmm. And, uh, our, and our most famous uh, chief who was, uh, fought the hardest for us, uh, John Ross, was mixed. So it's not such an issue uh, mm -hmm. in our tribe as it is in, 
in uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the uh, various tribes. Uh, I I think it again goes back to a value system and and um, uh, each individual rather than uh, uh, rather than a, a specific uh, degree of Indian blood. Mm -hmm. Thank you. As a white woman in Minnesota, what can I do to help? I think probably educate um, yourself about uh, Native people and educate those people around you. Uh, that's, a, that's one of the biggest problems that, uh, that we have today is the misunderstanding and the misinformation mm -hmm. about Native people. So I think that, that, um, uh, that's, that's a, that would be a big contribution to just do some self-education and then share that with people, people around you. Mm -hmm. Question from a student, and uh, fortunately we have many students here today. What did you do to become principal chief of the Cherokee Nation? How, how was your schooling, or what was your schooling? My background, educational background, has little to do with, with what I'm doing now. I have a bachelor's degree in social science. And uh, uh, my, I think that uh, it was more the result of uh, uh, being from a family. Uh, I'm from a family of 11 children. And my father was uh, very active in the community. and. Um, and early in my life was active in the church and active in the ceremonial grounds. And uh, we, we was just expected that we would grow up and do something um, uh, outside of our, our family to, to in the community at large. So I think that and then just happen, happening to be in the right place at the right time uh, helped me to, to become mm -hmm. chief. Thank you. Question from uh, how do I trace my Cherokee genealogy? What is the best route? The best road is to write the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma and we'll refer you to a genealogist. There's a little genealogy book, I think, that costs $5 and, and uh, you can get that and use that to, to trace your ancestry. A, a final question from the floor. What is your opinion of the effectiveness of the Bureau, Bureau of Indian Affairs, a U.S. governmental agency? <laughs> it's, um, it, it's an anachronism, I think that... Uh, that's the nicest way I could say it. <laughs> Peterson Zah, president of the Navajo Nation and a friend of yours, has said regarding you that Wilma Mankiller is a breath of fresh air in Indian leadership. She is a visionary who is very aggressive about achieving the goal she has in mind for her people. She truly cares about others, to which we say amen. Well, thank you very much. <laughs>